and take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Last week we focused on the introductory material for the majority of our time together. I told you it was like laying a foundation in preparation for building a building, and the foundation has to be deep enough and thorough enough and strong enough to hold the structure. And Hebrews is a magnificent structure. It soars like a mountain out of the pages of the New Testament. Older and wiser men have shied away, so I guess that would make me young and dumb. We're left with these facts from last week about the introduction. As Origen said, in terms of the author, only God knows. And then, to show my young foolishness, I gave you my opinion. And my opinion is that Apollos is the pastor preaching this sermon. I gave you, I hope, sustainable reasons for that. I'm going to give you another one today as we go into the sermon. Secondly, we saw that not only does God only know the author, but really God only knows when this letter was written and those who have died who received it. We're not certain of it, but I believe that we can make a good case for this to be an early 60s sermon. Between, somewhere between, most likely, year 60 and 65. As we lead into the great persecution that fell on the Roman Empire under the work of the maniacal Nero. The audience of the sermon is more clear. This is a, a, a sermon preached to Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews most likely worshiping in a house church in Rome. And the reasons for that are internal to the letter. makes it much easier to see. First of all, the style in which this is given is clearly a sermon. This is a sermon. This is not your traditional letter. Someone preached this. Now, I believe that it was preached, recorded, and sent then to the audience that it was intended for originally. And the reason that I make the argument for Rome and being a house church, two reasons. Hebrews 10, when we get there in the future, you will see it structures talking like you would talk to a small group. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together in these days that are getting worse and worse, as some are accustomed of doing. It's, it's, it's a very relational letter, a very um, personal talk that's going on. And then at chapter 13, he says, greet your leaders. And, and he's speaking in the plural there. And I think the reason is, is there was most likely several Hellenistic, majority Hellenistic Jewish house churches inside the church of Rome. And um, finally, the reason I picked Rome here, and many believe this, is because he says, the brothers from Italy greet you. And so, it's apparent to me that this pastor is preaching from some distance. Now he's sending the message back, I believe, from Ephesus. Timothy has been released from jail. Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus. Apollos was in Ephesus prior to Paul. Paul came in after Apollos. Seeing the work Apollos was doing, laid his hands on the brothers, and they received the Spirit. We talked about that last week. I think Apollos most likely stayed there working alongside Timothy as a fellow elder in the church, and Timothy was arrested. And now the people in Rome, Paul, if he's still living, one of them, wants to know that Timothy is released, and he's with us, and the brothers you sent to us 
are sending back greetings to you. This is where we come up with the audience being in Rome. Hellenistic. Most likely uh, a pastor preaching a sermon at some distance. And I think most likely the pastor was Apollos. And the purpose of the homily is clear. We don't have any question about this. And this is the way I summarized it. The writer, the preacher, is trying to persuade the Hellenistic Jews that God's final revelation of Himself in His Son is supreme to all past revelation. And this revelation is an anchor for our soul during the day of persecution that causes our faith to persevere. The purpose of the sermon... The sermon in an excellence in one statement is that God has spoken finally in His Son. It is so supreme above all other revelation of God in the past that it becomes an anchor that holds in the day of persecution our soul in faith to this one, the Son. We could, we could shorten the theme of the book by simply saying this. Jesus is the better and final word. And that's the title of today's sermon. Jesus is the better and final word. But before we get into the meat of the sermon, I want to say that this sermon that we have before us is a piece, a masterpiece, unmatched of anything that I've ever studied in terms of homiletical brilliance. This preacher was skilled when he spoke. This is a homily. It's not... It's, it's an, a homily intended to exhort. It's not your traditional exposition as we would understand an exposition. There's a, little, there's a little difference here. The homily was a style used by the Jews in Alexandria. Another reason I think it was Apollos because he was from Alexandria and was most likely raised by these Jewish philosophers. Philo being the main, the school of Philo came from Alexandria. This is their style. This is the way they spoke. And it's a homily. It's an argument from a point through Scripture. It's not necessarily taking a passage which is classical exposition like we're going to do this morning and tearing it to little shreds and understanding that one passage. A homily is a flowing rhetorical device that pushes you to a moment of belief that argues you into its case from Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. It's an exhortation. The homily we have before us in Scripture is a masterpiece. And today, I want us to look just at the sermon's introduction. Just the first three verses. Jesus truly is the better and final word from God. He will continue, the pastor will in his sermon, this argumentation throughout the sermon. He's going to continue to say and warn. Listen to my paraphrase of his warnings based on the fact that Jesus is the better and final word, listen to these warnings now. If you turn away from this Son, then you will be eternally lost. If God, who did not spare those who did not hear His revelation through the mouth of the prophets, if He did not spare these who rejected the prophets, then how will you escape in the day of judgment if you tread under your feet the precious blood of His Son? This is a holy ground that we walk on. This is an unbelievable scene into the holy of holies, the reverent place of worship of heaven. 
And we see Jesus here seated at the right hand of the majesty on high from which He will come one day. And through seeing Him, our desire is to be changed. That we be like Him. That we be obedient to Him. That we be conformed into His image. And that can only happen when the Spirit goes with us. So let's pray and plead with the Spirit to come with us and to teach us and to train our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we beg of You that Your Spirit would be with us in this moment. Take away all distraction. Take away all other thoughts. Take away all... (coughs) all of the uh, bitterness that we might have harbored this week against our brothers, take away all of the low thoughts of you, take away all of our sin, remove the barriers from our, our ability to come before you and help us to approach your throne by your grace in these moments to fully comprehend the magnificent beauty of your Son, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And we're going to do a little review and tie up last week with this week. First of all, like we said last week, in this sermon, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. That's verse 1. God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. First of all, He says it was long ago. In here, the preacher is trying to help us understand that God isn't a Johnny-come-lately when it comes to Revelation. He didn't just one day, several thousand years into the existence of mankind, say, oh yeah, I might ought to tell them who I am. He begins at the very beginning. God has been communicating with His people throughout the entirety of, of human history. Throughout the entirety of the universe's history, God has been speaking. How has He communicated Well, we see not from this passage, but we see through the prophets that He spoke to us through general revelation, what we might call the created order. And isn't He shouting to us this morning? As you drove here, as you got out and walked among His creation, that is designed to make your heart say, there is a God. He has revealed the invisible things partly through the created order. In Genesis 1, we see that God is speaking the general revelation. Because it's through the creative Word that He made all of these things. Everything that exists, exists because He spoke it into existence from nothing. So in the truest sense, when we say the general revelation is speaking, when the Psalms talk about the trees clapping their hands in the mountains, crying forth with praise in the rocks, Jesus said, will cry out to honor me if you shut the mouths of these little ones. When Jesus talks that way, in truth, it really fits the picture we see in Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? Where God spoke all things into existence. In our day, through the technology that we have available to us, we are seeing more and more that the chain of life is truly a communication chain. Your DNA, your cells work because they communicate. And that communication, if you stretched out the communication contained in the cells of one human, it would reach around the earth many, many times. Just in one body. God has spoken this information into us. Is that not glorious? Our God is speaking through the creation. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all of those under the heavens. Why? Because they have rejected and perverted what He gave them in the creation. He gave them a witness to Himself. And they have taken that and twisted it and made it into idolatry. And it has angered God. 
Don't ever fool yourself. You live in a world and in a universe and in a creation that speaks so loudly that for you to sit and deny the existence of God is to spit in God's face. And that is a dangerous place to sit. It's under the wrath of God that the lost man sits fully convicted because he is convinced there is no God in the face of undeniable revelation. General revelation. God began to speak in Genesis chapter 1 and truly He has not stopped speaking from that point. But it's not just general revelation. It's special revelation which is really what verse 1 is all about. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers but by the prophets. This is what we call special revelation. It's beyond general revelation. God gave the general witness of His invisible attributes and then beyond that He spoke. Through the prophets. Now, when did he begin to speak to his people? In Genesis, at the very beginning, we see the first recorded words of God, though we know he spoke much earlier than that. He must have been speaking to them from the day of their creation, right? Because in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of mankind, the Bible says that God came looking for Adam. He's not looking for him because he doesn't know where he is. He's looking for him because Adam doesn't know where he is. But he showed up for his appointment. He wants to be with Adam. He desires to be with his people. And he says, Adam, where are you? These are the words of God. Before that, it's not contained in Genesis. The, the statement is not made clear in Genesis. But Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 makes it very clear that the pronouncement of the first marriage between the first man and first woman was the pronouncement of God. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Those are the very words of God. Adam and Eve heard those words over their union. They heard God speak. God began to speak in Genesis 3. He continues in Genesis 4, speaking to Cain. Cain, sin crouches at the door. Its desire is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. He continues in Genesis chapter 6, speaking directly to human beings, His people. Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says in verse... Um, in verse 13, that God spoke to Noah who had found favor in God's sight. And he gave him the exact instructions of how to create and build the ark. And why he was doing it. It's because he wanted to preserve a witness to himself. And he wanted to preserve his godly line. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Abraham received the direct oracle of God. He went to worship under the, the, the oaks of Mamre. And what did he find there? Not idols. Not all of the gods of the Canaanites. But he found the one true God who said, leave everything you have, Abraham, Abram, and go to the land. And when you get there, I'll show you where that land is. And I will make you a great blessing. And through you, I will bless every nation on the planet. This is the direct word of God in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. A son of Abraham, Moses, the great mediator we heard of in Exodus 33, heard God speak, carrying his sheep through the wilderness. He looked and saw a burning bush was, which was not being consumed. And he showed up on the mountain, Mount Sinai. And when he arrived, the bush was there and God spoke. Moses, Moses. Moses' immediate response was frozenness, trepidation, fear. Moses, the ground you stand on is holy. Take off your sandals. And then he continues to speak and give Moses his name, revealing that he is the great existing one. I am. 
This is a marvelous truth that God has not only spoken through the created order that surrounds us and the beauty that we see, but He has spoken by His Word to His people directly. Not only has He spoken in these direct ways, but He's spoken through the prophets. It includes the category of... of, uh, he, He tells us that what He's doing is He's giving us His character. He's telling us He's telling us that He exists. He's telling us who He is. And He's telling us what His will is from the very beginning. Long ago, that's the first thing we see under God speaking. Secondly, under the theme of God speaking, we see at many times. In other words, God didn't just do it one time and say that's, that would have been, listen to me, that's more than enough. We don't deserve God to ever speak. God is not obligated to make Himself known to any of His creation. Sometimes we get it so backwards, we think, God owes me an answer. Let me tell you, God owes you nothing. And He's given you far more than you could have ever asked for, I could have ever asked for. He has spoken long ago at many times. 39 books, the author, the, 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 the pastor, I can hear him now. He's thinking, he spoke so much, we have 39 books. And that's just the cliff notes of what he said to our people. He spoke long ago, at many times, thirdly, in many ways. In many ways, he spoke in various ways through the prophets. Last week, we emphasized some of these ways. He spoke to the prophets, direct communication. He spoke to them through visions and dreams. He spoke to them through angels who came to them with messages. He spoke to them (coughs) through the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. He spoke to them by epiphanies. He spoke to them by natural phenomena. In other words, they sat down, Job, and the whirlwind passed by and God said, Do you see me in that? No. And then it goes through the flood. Do you see me? No. And then the still, small voice comes and that's where Job found God. The Spirit speaking directly to him. In natural phenomena, in the Spirit speaking, in visions and dreams and angels. In many ways God has spoken. And listen, God is not above using even a jackass to talk to a prophet. I tell you, He has spoken various ways. Now He's not limited Himself to one way. He's done it so many ways. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that amazing that we see our patterns of life and speech And they're patterned after God. If someone stood and talked in the same way all the time, you would get bored, would you not? God, the worst sin you can ever commit against God is to make Him boring. He is anything but boring. The variety is endless. He has spoken at many times, long ago at many times and in many ways. A lot of this is presented as evidence of God's unceasing work. To make himself known to the world. And specifically to his people. The the preacher wants you to know. He wanted his audience to know. God has spoken. This is more than God had to do. But this is not all he would do. Aren't we glad that's not all he did? He didn't have to do that. But listen. He shows his great love. By going beyond what even he didn't have to do. 
and becomes yet even more intimate. Look at your text there. We've gone through the first verse, but look at the beginning of verse 2. Three little letters in the English. Ava in the, in the Greek. But. Now, so far we've seen, uh, and there is in this passage, great continuity. Flow. God was speaking in Genesis 1, speaking in Exodus, speaking in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and 1 Samuel and 1 Kings and Psalms and Malachi. God was speaking through all of these various ways at various times, various people. There's, and He's spoken in these last days. There's continuity. God has not quit speaking. But look at the little word, but. Here's the contrast. All of those ways, as great and as mighty as they are, don't compare to what I'm about to tell you. That's what the pastor is saying. He says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, in these last days, He has spoken to us by Son. We made a point of that last week. There's no article there in the Greek. There's no modifier there. It's just Son. In other words, it stands out off the page. It jumps up. There is no one like this. He is singularly the Son. And He has spoken to us by this Son. So secondly, in this passage, we see God spoke to us in these last days by His Son. That's the first part of verse 2. Now we've heard from God in this most intimate way. He spoke to us by His Son. It doesn't get any more intimate than that. He spoke to us by Himself. This is not the only time God shows the continuity and yet climactic role that Jesus plays in the revelatory history of redemption. This is the first, but not the last time we will see God say, <coughs> excuse me, I'm doing what I've been doing since Genesis. And so you see the continuity of the Bible. The togetherness of the Bible. Truly, this is one book with one message about one person. But, there is this continuity. The old is not what the new has become. It's not as grand. It's not as good. And that plays into what he's trying to do with this homily. He's trying to convince Hellenistic Jews, people who have grown up in the Jewish tradition, they're, they're, they're Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Jews, but they've grown up in the Jewish tradition, they came to know the Gospel, and they believed, and now in persecution they're thinking, Maybe it would be better to go back to the approved religion of, Jewish, of our Jewish forefathers. In the face of this persecution, it would be safer for my children and for my heritage if I just worshiped like the Jews. The Romans accepted the Jewish worship. They did not accept Christian worship. The Romans believed the Christians were a schism of Judaism. A splinter that was dangerous to Caesar and the worship of Caesar. And so it's why Nero began to persecute, and truly every emperor from that point forward persecuted unto death Christian people. And so here we have these Hellenists, Hellenistic people, taking on the culture of their Greek neighbors and their Jewish people, and the persecution, wick of persecution is turning up. And they say in their minds and even externally, listen, let's just play it safe. We can still love Jesus, but we'll just go back to the outward forms of Judaism and they'll leave us alone. Can you understand that logic? Have you ever been tempted in this way? I'm often tempted this way. 
I don't desire for you to look at these people in the first audience and say, those stupid people. We've got Jesus. How dare they turn back? I want us to look at those people and say, that's me. When things get rough in life, I want to go back to what I'm comfortable with. I want to leave my first love. I want to grow cold in my devotion to Him. And I just want to have outward semblance and the picture of outward religion without the internal change that it brings. I just want to play the game to look right, to be accepted. It's, are you ever tempted that way? I'm tempted that way. It's okay to nod your head that way. I've had to spend a lot of this week on my face before God repenting of that very thing in my own life. Allowing myself to carry on the forms of religion, to carry on the forms of ministry in my own strength, in my own power, without prayerfulness, without heart change, without devotion to the one who I'm supposedly serving. I've had to do it this week. Listen, don't come here and hear me thundering at you. I'm right there with you. This is the point of the sermon where I'd like to go sit down right there. Right? And join you and say, look, we're in this together. That's what this writer is doing. This is what this sermon is about. I know the temptation is real. I know it looks tempting to just say, hey, I'm going I'm to put on the outward forms and I'm going to stay away from the interchange because when you start having interchange, it's radical and it changes everything about who you are and what you talk about and who you hang out with and how you spend your money and how you treat your wife or your husband and how you raise your children and how you do your job. It changes everything. That's dangerous. I'll just keep that over there and just go to church and be sweet and be kind and kind of gut it out grip my teeth, try real hard, get approval from everybody around me. That's our temptation. Just like the Hellenistic Jews who wanted to go back to Judaism because it was safer, it was easier. But this sermon is arguing. It's arguing the point. point do not go back. He has spoken to us in a very intimate way through His Son. This is not the only time God shows the continuity. As I said, turn with me though. Because I think this passage is closely related to a passage in the Gospels. God spoke in all of these ways in times past through the prophets. And they had, <coughs> they had two major prophets in the Old Testament that the Jews held up and said, these are the top of the chain. Moses and Elijah. He was often referred to Elijah as the second Moses. Because during his time, the people were like the wilderness Jews. They had turned away from God. They had gone to other religions. And they were worshiping idolatry, pure and simple. They were sacrificing their children and all manner of evil. And you remember Elijah? Elijah in the desert saying, God, I'm the only one left. Everybody else has turned against you, but I'm still here. And God says, listen, I've preserved 7,000 prophets that have not bowed the knee. To, to, to Baal. You're not all alone. Moses and Elijah have a lot of the same personality traits, don't they? Do you ever, do you ever notice those similarities? What did Moses say? I'm the only one. I don't want to be the one. Right? Elijah's doing the same thing. I don't want to be the one. They both spent all a good bit of their life out in the wilderness, right? Running from the kings of their day. There's a lot of similarities. They, for many reasons, rose to the top of this pile of the prophets. Okay? So in Matthew 17, which we read earlier, verses 1 through 8, 
It is no mistake that on that mountain with Peter, James, and John there, God brought, the, brought Moses and Elijah to Jesus. He didn't just randomly say, it, it couldn't have been anyone else. I'm going to make that argument. It couldn't have been Joel or Jeremiah or Isaiah. It had to be Moses and Elijah. Because as they looked at it, they said, this is the Old Testament. The first great mediator and the last great mediator of the Old Testament. This is them. And you can hear the Jewishness in Peter. Let's worship all three. And what does God say? Immediately. This is my son. Listen to him. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in this last day, he has spoken to us by his son. And God is saying through Hebrews and through Matthew, listen to him. Why should we listen to him, God? Moses is a great leader. Elijah is a great leader. What makes Jesus so much better and so final? I'm glad you asked that question. The pastor here is glad you asked also. Because third, in this passage, we see that the son is better and final because. <clears throat> what you have in verse 2, beginning in the second part of verse 2, after by his son, through verse 3 and into verse 4, which we're not going to cover today, is a string of relative clauses. That means they depend on something. They can't stand alone. They are modifying one thing. They are participial. All of you young ones in elementary school learning the parts of speech, it's important. Participial phrases depend on the phrase that they describe. They're only descriptive. You get that? The main point is not these participial phrases. Not from where we are now. That's not the main point. The main point in this introduction is the Son is better and final. He has spoken to us by His Son. But He knew you. And He knew His first audience. And He knew that you would say, well, yeah, but Moses is pretty top notch. I'm not sure. Maybe we should just listen to Moses. Maybe that's enough. And so he gave you a string of clauses to say, Moses is not enough. Elijah is not enough. The old covenant is not enough. And here, let's dig into this because this is where it gets good. I'm excited about this. This part. I believe what we're looking at right here is a chiasm. I know that it's popular to say this is a hymn or a creed. But as I studied it, first by myself, and then I began, because when you get one of these crazy ideas, you, you think, I'm, I'm out of my mind. And then I began to search. I'm like, no, I'm in a long line of men who believe the same thing. Hear me closely. This may have become a hymn. And it may have become a creed. But it is not like Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where it seems obvious that Paul is quoting a creed or a hymn. 
Nor is it like 1 Timothy verse, chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul quotes a creed. He quotes it, okay? This passage is not like that. This is original to our pastor. And it is a chiasm in the, in the order of an... Now, what does a chiasm do? A chiasm... Kids, I'm just telling you this because the, the, the adults know all this. I'm kidding. A chiasm is an Old Testament structure. So he's writing to Jews. This makes sense, right? It's an inclusio. The first relates to the last. The middle relates to the second to last. And then you have the meat of the point that he's driving home. It's like a bracket around the main clause of the relative clauses. Now I want to show you what he does here in these first verses. Look at me in your take. You don't have to have your Bible open, okay? You've got to have a Bible. At the beginning of this, he says, the prophets and the sons. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Verses 1 through 2a are together. The prophets and the Son are being compared. Now, if you drop down in our text to verse 4, which we're not going to cover today, you have the, the, the follow-up phrase to that first phrase. Having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels, the Son. Okay, that's your first bracket. That's your largest, now we're going to work in. So the next phrase, 2B, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And that phrase relates with, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then we have, for whom he also, cre also he created the world. And then it matches, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which leaves us with the essence of all of these relative clauses. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know why he's better than Moses? You want to know why he's better than Elijah? You want to know why he's better than the angels? Better than the Aaronic priesthood? Better than the old covenant? Because he alone is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. Of his very nature. Listen to him. This is what the pastor's begging you to do. Listen to him. Listen, you want to go back to your old lifestyle? You want to go back to what feels good? You want to go back to your heritage? It will fail you. Jesus is enough. He is better. He is final. There's nothing more coming. The only thing left to come is the end when he will come. And we will see the radiance of His glory. Oh, I tell you, Matthew 17 is a beautiful passage. It predates. I mean, it, 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 uh, it's a pointer to the end. There, Peter, James, and John, representative of the people of God, are viewing Jesus in all of His glory. Almost. Not all of it. Almost all of it. He just pulled back a little bit of the veil and let them see the radiance. And you notice how he's described. His face shone brightly and his, his robes turned brilliantly white. And that's just a little peek. But I tell you, when he comes the second time, he comes in all of his glory, he will evaporate all that is in his way with the sheer power and force of his radiant being. And then it will be fulfilled. All of his enemies will be made 
his footstool. We see this playing out in a chiastic structure. The central focus of this whole introduction is he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Now let's look at these clauses together quickly. Let's look at these these relative clauses starting in verse 2, the C, C part, after his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. This is emphasizing the inheritance due to a son. So he made the argument, this is God's son. And logically what follows a son is what? An inheritance. So rather than saying what may have been natural, he created all things, our Hebrew writer, different than John, writes in, he is the inheritor of all things. He's emphasizing sonship in the book of Hebrews. That's his emphasis. It's one of his emphasis that the son is the heir of all things. Jesus is better than the prophets because he's the heir of all things. As I told you last week, Luke's parable. The vineyard owner had his tenant farmers working in the vineyard. The vineyard represented in the Old Testament, the vineyard was chosen as a representation of Israel, the people of God. And the people working were the leaders of Israel. In the, he had entrusted it to them. Do you understand that? And then he sent the prophets to them and said, pay me, pay me my due and worship me, basically. And they said, no. And they beat them. And they killed them and they threw them out. And so God said, I will send my son. Surely they will accept my son. And when he sends his son, what is the result? They say, this is the heir. If we kill him, we get the vineyard. That's what the Jews did when Jesus came. They said, we don't want that. We reject that. We don't want God's final word. And they killed him. They murdered him with guilty hands. And so we have here the heir of all things. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the old covenant. He is the son. He is the heir of all things. It's the only He's the only one who has a right to the inheritance. And thank God that because we are in Him, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we will inherit what He inherits. Now, second relative clause here. Through whom He created the world. He's the rightful heir of all things because He's God. And secondly, because He created everything. If you make it, it belongs to you. As Bill Cosby famously said, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. And I can make another one just like you. God is saying, everything you see, every human that ever walked the planet, belongs to the Son because He's the heir of all things. Because He made it. He spoke it into existence. By the power of His Word, all things that exist now exist. Not just the things we see, but the things we cannot see. The invisible, heavenly, and demonic beings. Invisible to us, visible to Him. All of the heavenly realm belongs to Him. All of the created earthly realm belongs to Him. All of eternity belongs to Him. There's one interesting thing here. If you look at that, this phrase, through whom also He created the world, in the original, that word world is plural. 
And it's led some to say, it's not just the created things, but the very times of their existence which He has, which He has created. In other words, you exist now because He made you to exist now. He made everything in its order to exist when it exists. He's the creator of the worlds. What a beautiful picture. What a, what a high moment. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He's providentially in charge of everything that He has created in this universe and in the heavenlies. Not one action takes place in which He does not allow and plan and carry out through secondary causes. Everything that happens, happens because of Him. You continue to exist. The reason you have not evaporated, the reason you have not blown to pieces this very moment, just ceased to exist, is because He has said to you, hold together. Hold together. He is in the heavenly places causing your existence. This separates Him from the deistic gods. He's not just simply the one who spun it all into existence and now he's back eating a Twinkie, waiting on all things to come to an end. He's intimately involved every single moment of every day. I was watching this week, I encourage you parents, take your kids home, look this up, it's on Desiring God. A solar flare, the last solar flare. Did anybody see that this week? The last recorded solar flare that happened on the, on the sun they caught it with a telescope. They took a picture. They saw it just, it flamed out. A solar flare is nothing but just the heat of the sun and just explodes like a volcano. And all of this fire just shoots out across. Then they took our earth, NASA has, and transposed it onto the sun. It's, it's a dot. It's just a black dot. That's how big the sun is. And that one solar flare is 30 more than 30 times the size of the diameter of our earth. That was just the volcanic eruption of the sun, just in a moment, just like that. But listen, that solar flare happened at that moment in time because he said it should happen. The meteors fall into the atmosphere of our earth and burn away so that you and I aren't pelted continually with them because he says, don't go any further. The ocean rises and then stops from wiping all of the earth away because he has set its boundary and said, you can't go any more than that. Children, your dog lives. Your kitty cat lives because Jesus tells it to. And it will die when he says, die. And your children and you exist only as long as He says, live. He holds all things together by the power of His Word. He created it by His Word, by speaking in existence, and He holds it by His Word. After making purification for our sins, the emphasis here is not on the creature and not on the creation but on the redemption of His creatures. He not only created it and is sovereign over it, but He loved it and He died for it and made purification 
He washed His children clean. He took them and He plunged them into the depths of His eternal sacrifice and He brought them forth radiantly, gloriously clean before His Father. He made us pure by His sacrifice on the cross. Here we see the king and the priest. He's not just a king. He's not just a priest. He's a king and a priest. And he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is his eternal session. His eternal ruling. His sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is the king. He has all authority. The reason he's at the right hand of the Father is because that's the hand of authority. He has all authority to do in heaven and earth as he pleases. And he pleases to do the will of the Father. Psalm chapter 2, Son, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool under your feet and you will reign and rule over them. Psalm 110 is being fulfilled in Jesus in the fact that He is ruling and reigning on His Father's throne, the throne of David, until all worlds throughout the eons. And I've left one for conclusion. That mental part of the structure. Listen to me. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. By radiance, I mean He is the one that shines forth. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Moses went on the mountain and he saw a part of the glory of God and he shone forth radiantly so that when he came down as the mediator before the people of Israel, they said, cover your face, we can't stand to see you. So he covered himself. He had been in the presence of God and just being in the presence of God, the radiance changed his very complexion so that it shone forth. Now, imagine with me, think with me, because this is what the author's wanting you to do. This preacher's wanting you to know. If Moses had to veil his face just from being in the presence of the radiance, how much greater is the radiance of Jesus who is the radiance of the Father? He's not just receiving it He is it. When we read in the Bible that God shines forth in Shekinah glory, that Shekinah glory is the sun that shines forth. He is the light that came into a dark place. He is the light of the world, John chapter 8. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And in His face we have beheld the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. Moses received the law. He has given us the gospel. What a beautiful picture of the radiance, but it's not just that He's the radiance, but He's the very imprint of the Father. This is different. This is different from Paul's choice of image. This word indicates a seal on a person, on a king or a ruler. With the authority of the king, there was a design for each one of them. And when they stamped their document in hot wax, on the ring, it made the imprint, it left the imprint so that in John 12, when Philip says, we would see the Father, and he says, you've seen me, so you've seen the Father. We don't have to say, I wish I could see God. We've seen God in the face of Jesus. And He's truly the only one we will ever see. You will never see God the Father. You will never. Not in all eternity will you see God the Father. You will know He's there, and you will see Him in the Son. He is the imprint of His Father. And He is the radiance of His glory. So I want to ask you this. What are you going to go to if you walk away from this Jesus?
You going to go back to your life of sin? You going to turn to the love of a woman or the love of a man and make that what your life's about? You going to turn to business and profit and gain as if that's going to save you? You going to turn back to another religion? You going to go back to dead religion? What are you going to go to? Listen, church, let us our, our confession be what the confession of the apostle Peter was. Who do you say that I am, Peter? I say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that same Peter, listen to me, is the one who when Jesus said, will you leave me also? What did he say? Where will we go? We have found that you are the one that has the words of life. Peter came to the end of himself and he realized there's no one except Jesus. And if he's not it, there is no it. If he can't save me, no one can save me. If he's not what the Father says he is, we have no hope. Stop waiting at the door of salvation trying to figure out if he is or is not the one to save you. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. He's the one who created it and upholds it. He's the one who who not only spoke it into existence, but now has redeemed it through His high priestly work and has sat down as the King of heaven and earth on the throne. Worship Him, church. Don't go back to anything else. Don't go away. I plead with you. He is the one and only Son in whom we find peace with God.